Hello, and it's a privilege once again to enjoy your company here on Search for Truth. So thanks for tuning in. I'm delighted you could join us. Your Bible teacher, Brian Johnston, has another talk in this present series about the gospel of God's grace. It's taken from the letter of Paul to the Christians in Galatia and the circumstances which caused Paul to have to write to them. And that's the main basis for our study. And this time, Brian says, it all points to faith alone. And here he is to explain. Thanks, John. The migration of people is very much a topical concern, isn't it? But of course it's not new. One theory of the migration of ancient people and language groups holds that long ago a group of people, variously known as the Celts or the Gauls, migrated westwards as far as the British Isles, but also eastwards through the Balkans into a central portion of modern-day Turkey. This expansion in the 3rd century BC left a pocket of Gauls in what was then Asia Minor, and known to New Testament readers as Galatia. This ethnic Galatia was smaller than the province the Romans called Galatia, which extended to the south and included the cities mentioned in Acts chapter 14. To them, the Apostle Paul wrote a biblical letter. Some writers outside of the Bible have written disparagingly of the Gauls, but when the Apostle Paul begins his third chapter by describing them as foolish, he probably wasn't intending a national slight. But he doesn't hesitate from using such language to describe the Galatian Christians. He literally called them lacking in understanding. Of special concern was their instability. Paul reminds them how he had set Christ before them in his preaching, but somehow they'd allowed the Judaizers to come along and it was almost as if they'd given them the evil eye or bewitched them. They'd moved away from the biblical gospel of faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. As someone might add a drop of poison to water, these false teachers had added aspects of law observance to the pure faith. Paul at once demands to know if they'd received God's Holy Spirit as a result of recently placing their faith in Christ as personal saviour, or had they received the Spirit when obeying the works of the law? In fact, he asked them six rapid-fire questions in the first five verses. And for a second time, he scolds them for their foolish lack of understanding. The answer to this incisive question should have been so blindingly obvious. Like a teacher helping students work through a live tutorial session, Paul guides them to the answer which he delivers in verse 14. We receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. But his way of arriving at the answer is instructive as it majors on the great ancestral figure of Abraham. It's worth us all weighing up the strength of the apostles' arguments because in every generation there's a danger which spreads in from the cults and it's essentially the same danger which was faced down in the first century. It's the danger of reverting to works in some form or another. Today, you hear some groups saying you need to observe the Sabbath or you need to be baptised or you need to pay tithes. The general form is always the same. It's always faith plus something in order to be saved and to stay saved. The particular issue in Paul's time for Jewish Christians was circumcision. They even wanted Gentiles who came to faith in Christ to be circumcised. Of course, they could rightly say, but it says it in the Bible. What they didn't, 
and some today don't appreciate is that the Bible's revelation is progressive, beginning with God's restart with Abraham and leading on through the time of the law given through Moses, Paul is now going to show them the final and fullest revelation of God is in Christ. It was very relevant that Paul, by the Spirit, first singled out Abraham. Pagan Abraham, originally, had done nothing to merit the privilege of being called by God. God's dealings are always about grace. Grace on God's part and faith to receive it on our part. And for Abraham, it would be a radical faith which required a man nearing a hundred years of age with no children to believe that he'd become, on the basis of God's word alone, the father of a great nation, a nation which would in turn be the means of bringing blessing into all the world. God didn't give Abraham a single square metre of real estate, but he did give him his word, his promise for the future. God's promise to Abraham showed the necessity of faith, Faith is expressed in radical obedience, like Abraham's. Abraham is also a significant choice in Paul's argument for yet another reason, because he was the first man God ever commanded to be circumcised. You read that in Genesis chapter 17. The major point in Paul's reasoning is that Abraham was regarded as righteous in God's sight even before his circumcision. His right status with God was not down to his having been circumcised. Far less was it about his law observance, for the law wouldn't arrive for another 400 years. Listen to Paul on the same topic, but this time when writing to Christians in Rome. It's from Romans chapter 4 verse 8. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then on the circumcised? or on the uncircumcised also. For we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. It's unmistakable in God's word, isn't it? Abraham was credited as being right with God before he was ever circumcised. Back in Galatians chapter 3 again, verse 11, Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Some will recognise this as Luther's verse, quoted here by Paul from Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. Galatians, Romans, now Habakkuk, all blending together to show the unwavering consistency of the Bible, in this case as it bears upon the basic truth of the Christian message, as well as telling us that faith like Abraham's faith, brings blessing, Paul also says that the law brings a curse through our inability to keep it. Then comes the good news in Galatians 3 verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Remarkably, this actual quotation comes from Deuteronomy chapter 21, where it relates most closely to the case of disobedient sons who had committed misdemeanours worthy of death. They were strung up, regarded as objects accursed by God. The Apostle Paul applies it to Christ on the cross. 
striking contrast, isn't it? He is God's son, fully obedient, but entering in under God's curse in our place and on account of our disobedience. Well, these thoughts bring Paul to Moses, and Paul begins to deal with the law and its proper place in God's purposes. The law was given to show that humanity is sinful at the core, chronically disobeying the law of God and in need of salvation. The law doesn't make us sinners, but it exposes our sin. It's aptly described in this role as being like our tutor giving instructions to children. Luther said the law's design is to make men worse, not better. We discover we need grace because we stand cursed beneath the law. With Abraham, it was all about blessing. With Moses, the curses become prominent. We need to get things the right way round. Successively, in the third chapter of Galatians, we explore with Paul, first of all, the necessity of faith, then the futility of our own fallen flesh, and finally the freedom that's alone found in Christ. As God shaped history, everything was building to this, that the promise given at the first to Abraham pinpointed the Christ who was coming. And the law also was given until Christ, the one to whom it was designed to lead us. The whole of the Old Testament, including the law, was saying, look to Christ. He was the one to obey the law for us and to bear its curse for us. Jesus takes the curse and he completes the promise. I was speaking the other day to a fine Christian man who appeared to think that persons in the Old Testament were not saved by faith because they lived before the cross. We spoke of how they didn't realise all the details of what God would do in Christ, but their faith was still in the Gospel, Abraham's Gospel. Salvation has always been by faith. The danger of ignoring the Old Testament is to enslave ourselves again, for the law prepares us for grace. The study of the Old Testament law shouldn't be ignored by us, for its importance lies in us seeing that it firstly was like a prison where we are convicted of our sin, and secondly, it was like a personal tutor to bring us to Jesus Christ, the great liberator from our sin. It's the faithfulness of Christ that has made the difference, freeing us, justifying us, and adopting us as sons of God. Paul's been talking about Jewish believers having the status of mere minors during their Judaism phase. Their status was much the same as that of a household slave whose education was being supervised by a family employee. Paul says, when the faithfulness of Christ was manifested, as promised before the law was given, those same Jewish believers finally attained their majority status. Things suddenly changed with their faith in Christ. I was particularly struck with how their water baptism is referred to. Of course, it's only the symbol of their faith, but the text tells us that this was when they clothed themselves with Christ. Galatians 3 verse 27. That's a striking expression, isn't it? To clothe oneself with Christ. This would be like when a youth in that Roman society got his garment of manhood. Spiritually then, a believer's baptism is signifying he or she has come of age by the hearing of faith which was what the prior tutelage under the law had been designed by God to prepare them for. So what's the practical impact of this colourful language? An early Christian commentator put it like this, He who is clothed appears to be that with which he is clothed.
the stand we take in baptism should coincide with our active attempt to appear to behave like Christ, saved through faith alone, in Christ alone, and freed to live to please God, we express our dedication in the waters of believers' baptism by total immersion. enjoyed today's talk and also that you know the joy and eternal security that comes from having faith in Christ Jesus. There's a transcript book for all the talks in this series and it's available free on request by asking for the title The Gospel of God's Grace. You can order by email or by post and here's our address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wotton Bassett, Swindon SN48DY UK and our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info and did you know by looking up www.searchfortruth.org.uk you'll find our church's main website where you can download some actual programs and their accompanying transcripts as well as accessing other helpful material So thanks once again for the pleasure of your company and I hope you've enjoyed today's study. Next week we have another talk about the gospel of God's grace. Its emphasis is the faithfulness of Christ. So please join us again if you can. But for now it's best wishes from Bible teacher Brian, our studio technician David, our singers and me John. So cheerio and may God richly bless you. (laughs) 